It's 8 a.m., but it's only beginning to be dawn in the swamp. Already, however, men and machine are at work at the F.A. Schist construction camp. From a shadow-shrouded spot, some distance away, the menacing man-thing watches a flurry of activity. He listens to the clanking and grinding of gears, and he is puzzled. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of a swamp-based monster comic. Today on the program, Man-Thing number seven, The Old Die Young. This will be the start of a of a two-part arc dealing with Man-Thing encountering the Fountain of Youth. And it just so happens that the Fountain of Youth will be my topic of discussion today. What a coincidence! Who knew that was going to happen? I did, because I planned it that way. So I'm recording this episode the first week of February 2019, and shockingly enough, there is no current Man-Thing news to relate to you all. But I will tell you this. A little while ago, I put it out there that I would do an episode on the Man-Thing movie from 2005 if I got enough positive responses, and... I did. So I guess that's a thing I'm going to have to do now. I don't know when I'm going to do it. Probably maybe over the Easter break. But (laughs) look forward to me reviewing a bad movie sometime in the near future. The reason I'm reluctant to do this is is that I'm not going to just sit here and rip on a bad movie for 30 minutes or so. Because I find that sort of thing tedious and, uh, and just not fun to do. So... My difficulty is attempting a redemptive reading of the thing, literally, (laughs) and to find positive things to say and interesting themes in it. Uh, That means I have to watch it multiple times. (sighs) I'm just saying this because I want credit. I'm doing this for you, people. I'm doing this because I love you and I want you to have nice things. Anyway, as I said, today's story incorporates the Fountain of Youth and some folklore about Florida's history, so that's what I'm going to talk about. Right now, in fact. The Fountain of Youth is a magical spring whose waters can bring back health and vitality to the person who bathes or drinks of it. Stories about the Fountain of Youth go back thousands of years. Herodotus in the 5th century BC, or BCE, depending on how you want to say it. I'm, I'm old, so I still say BC, but the modern preference is, is BCE. I suppose I could edit all this out and just pick a way to say it, but I'm not going to do that. Because editing is hard. Uh, where was I? Oh, Herodotus, father of history. Roughly 2,500 years ago, he tells of a people called the... Wait for it. Ichthyopagi. Aha. Or fish fish eaters. Can't believe I got Ichthyopagi right, but stumbled over fish eaters. (laughs) Anyway, he tells of the fish eaters, who washed and bathed in a fountain that made their flesh glossy and sleek and it gave them a scent like that of fresh violets. That's nice. Oh, and they also lived to be upwards of 120 years old or more, so that's a bonus. Also, the ancient Indian epic the Mahabharata has a story in it. Well, it has has many stories in it. The Mahabharata is very long, covers a lot of territory, but in in one of the stories, in one tale, it tells of a man who who gives a supply of soma, that's a ritual drug, to some holy men, and in return, he is told where the river of rejuvenation is. Uh, The river is the Sarasvati, uh, and he bathes in the Sarasvati, and 
is purified and never ages again. Oddly enough, to this day, people still bathe in that river as a rite of purification. At the time of this recording, no word on the non-aging thing continuing. Similarly, there's, uh, there are many stories in the Quran and the Bible that talk about magical pools that restore health and sometimes life to those who bathe in them. Now, in the ancient world, public bathing, especially in, in hot springs and mineral baths, were popular and sought after. Uh, it was a very social and communal thing. In places all over the Roman world, murals and carvings have been found that depict fountains and baths that seem to show them having restorative power, or at least benefits to health. And of course, the Romans had some influence on popular culture during their time, uh, so these ideas and stories got around. And even before the Romans, the Etruscans had this habit of bathing in restorative waters, and it was so prevalent, it's thought that Etruscan raiders would invade other territories and bring their tales of magical youth-restoring waters with them, and that these stories began to spread and proliferate through them. Etruscan raiders, of course, as we all know, are a desert people, also known as the Sand People, who ride in single file to hide their numbers. Wait, I'm being told that is actually incorrect. And I'm thinking of Tuscan raiders, not from Italy, but from Tatooine. Sorry for the confusion, everyone. Uh, full disclosure, there's not really a lot of uh, Fountain of Youth lore in Etruscan culture that I could find. Uh, I just wanted to make a Star Wars joke, so that's who I am. But they did do the whole public bathing thing, so I'm not lying about that. Anyway, suffice to say, there are many, many examples of Fountain of Youth legends and the idea of restorative and enchanted waters. Be it a hot spring, an actual fountain, a river, or a stream, it's a story that has been told in one way or another from the ancient Greeks and Persians in India through the classical period in medieval legends, Renaissance romances, and right up to the present day. It seems the idea of wanting to be young and healthy and not die is kind of a universal sentiment. And these stories and legends became very popular throughout Europe, especially in the Age of Exploration around the 1500s, and in particular in Spain, which brings us to the tale of Ponce de Leon. And I'll tell you about that right after this break. Hey, Brian. What's up, Paul? Do you like comic books? I do. I love the funny books. Do you like listening to people talk about comic books? Why, yes, Paul. I find that both entertaining and informative. Well, that's great, because there's a new podcast where each episode a famous run or story arc is discussed in detail in a fun and totally not rambling way. It's called The Collected Edition. The Collected Edition? That sounds intriguing. Who are the hosts? Well, that's the best part. It's us, Paul Matthew Carr and Brian Reese. What? Fantastic! I love us. We're awesome. Where can folks find this amazing podcast, Paul? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Collected Edition can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as online at CollectedEditionPodcast.com. That's great. I'm going there right now. Me too. Are we done? Yeah, I think that'll do. When I was in school, I was told that Juan Ponce de Leon discovered Florida while searching for the Fountain of Youth. There are two problems with this. One being that you really can't discover a place that has hundreds of people already living there, and two, he wasn't actually looking for the Fountain of Youth. I'm going to discuss that in detail in just a moment, but first, as an aside, I once dated a girl from Florida who had a cat, a little tabby, named Ponce de Leon. 
That has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about. I just think it's adorable, and I wanted to share. But now, let's talk about one Juan Ponce de Leon. Wow. <laughs> when I wrote that down, I didn't take into account how that would sound when I said it out loud. One Juan Ponce de Leon. <laughs> it's a bit awkward, isn't it? <laughs> You know what it does sound like? It sounds like the teachers from Charlie Brown. Wah wah pong dillion. Okay, take two. But now let's talk about a fella named Juan Ponce de Leon. Nailed it. Old JPDL was a Spanish explorer and conquistador. He was also the governor of Puerto Rico and led expeditions into what he named La Florida. When he arrived on the coast of Florida... Juan Ponce was greeted by some natives who were, well, let's say, less than receptive to his advances. His party was attacked and forced to retreat. He would continue to raid, sorry, explore, the peninsula for years, setting up settlements and and basically doing what conquistadors are known for doing, until he was attacked by the natives and killed with a poison arrow. Ponce de Leon is credited with the discovery of Florida. Although, again, hard to discover a place with people already there. But the thing is, he probably wasn't even the first European to reach it. Still, myths and stories persist. In much the same way that we are told that Columbus proved the world was round, even though humans knew it was round for nearly a thousand years. People love to tell stories and weave adventures around mundane and sometimes questionable situations. For instance, although he was more than likely looking for gold or and expanding the Spanish Empire, Tales of Ponce de Leon searching for the legendary Fountain of Youth began to spread throughout Europe not long after his death. It was not uncommon at this time for exaggerated histories with larger-than-life exploits to be written and disseminated. And the myth of Ponce de Leon searching for the Fountain of Youth became, became a popular one, and it lodged itself in the popular culture. And it persists to this day. I mean, you can't swing a cat in Florida without hitting a spa called the Fountain of Youth, or some variation on that theme. And, and usually the cat you're swinging will probably be a tabby named Pounce, but that's beside the point. Okay, so that is the backstory on the Fountain of Youth and how it ended up in Florida, which will be important in today's Man-Thing story. Man-Thing! I know I'm doing a Man-Thing podcast, I'm getting there, so patience, young Padawans. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's the second Star Wars reference I made today. No clue why I'm doing that. Perhaps I should go watch Star Wars. But overall, the tale of Juan Ponce de Leon and his quest for the Fountain of Youth has just become part of the greater American folklore tradition. Just one of the tales we tell each other to make places and figures in American history seem more mythic. Uh, Like George Washington chopping down a cherry tree, or Jesse James as a Western Robin Hood, or that only Nixon could go to China. You know, the things that aren't true, but we make up and tell each other to make periods of history seem more significant. And all of that that I just spoke about for the last 10 minutes is not what I want to talk about. That's just backstory. What I really want to talk about is how the Fountain of Youth is used as a modern storytelling device. The Fountain of Youth is used, especially in recent times, uh, in the 70s in particular, for that matter, as a way to introduce a lost civilization or a hidden paradise, an idyllic civilization separated from the horrors of the world, free from sin and the corruption of aging, illness, and death. Usually an explorer or a a lost traveler will stumble upon this paradise and by accident or ill will infect the place with, for lack of a better word, sin, and misery will ensue. 
This storytelling device allows a writer to tell a kind of morality tale. If we were only allowed to live in Eden, then humans would return to innocence, like children. Without fear of sickness or death, our better natures would prevail, and we as a species would be content to spend our lives devoted to art and beauty. But either one of two things happen in a story like this. Either the outside world enters with its evil and malice and corrupts the idyllic paradise, causing the waters of life to run dry. Or we find that there is a cost to be paid for the long life and peaceful existence. A cost too terrible to mention. And depending on the genre, that price is either uh, aliens farming humans, uh, demon sacrifice, technology stunting growth, you know, that, that sort of thing. But details aside, the end result is always the same. It's an exploration of human motivation. Does everlasting life cause one to become harmonious with the world, or will the desire for it cause one to become a monster? And depending on the writer's level of cynicism or utopian idealism, your results may vary. I've always enjoyed this type of story, and not just a fountain of youth-centric story. I mean, the, the object of eternal youth could be the Holy Grail, or the Philosopher's Stone, or the MacGuffin of youngness. It doesn't really matter. It's all about how the characters react to that reward of everlasting life. And what really matters is what the author wants to tell us about ourselves. Is it in our nature to steal the promise of everlasting life for selfishness and greed? Or do we defend its secret as protectors of the mystery? Again, that all depends on the author's worldview. There's more I want to say about this, but first, let's see how Man-Thing tackles this particular type of story in... Man-Thing number 7, The Old Die Young. Cover dated July 1974, it was written by Steve Gerber, art and inks by Mike Plug, colored by Glennis Ween, lettered by John Costanza, edited by Roy Thomas. Somewhere in the swamp, Man-Thing stands silently watching as the F.A. Schist Construction Company dismantles their camp. Yes, F.A. Schist is back, and he's disgruntled about the failure of his year-long building project. It turns out that building a tiny independent airport in the middle of a swamp close to no major cities was a really bad idea. However, Schist blames it on the energy crisis, the oil companies, and the Arabs because, well, he's a dick. He also bemoans that he couldn't realize his other dream of eternal youth. He doesn't elaborate on this last tidbit of information because he sees Man-Thing lurking in the distance and Schist hurls abuse in his direction. He also hurls a stick. Man-Thing, he don't care. He just walks back into the swamp where he is attacked and netted by a group of conquistadors. This is unexpected. The conquistadors attempt to drag Man-Thing back to their secret lair, but Man-Thing, being a creature of slime and muck, simply oozes from the net. The conquistadors are frightened and run away. But sensing their fear, the one emotion Man-Thing hates, he follows in pursuit. Meanwhile, in Citrusville, Richard Rory is delighted to tell Ruth Hart and Isla that he's the new DJ at WNRV, the local radio and television station, and that they can now settle down together like a proper 70s threesome. His dream is soon crushed, however, when Ruth announces that she's going home to go back to school and start a better life. Richard takes this as a personal slight to himself and whines about him being a loser. Not once noticing that it's not about him and that he's a selfish, pathetic prick. Also in Citrusville, 
F.A. Schist confesses to Jack Wickham his whole plan for draining the swamp was to find the Fountain of Youth and convinces Wickham to hire a boat and ride with him into the deadly mystical swamp to find it. Wickham, for some reason, agrees. Back in the swamp, Man-Thing confronts the Conquistadors. He grabs one by the arm, and because the man is afraid, he burns, as one is wont to do when touched by Man-Thing. But the Conquistador does not simply burn. He collapses into bone and ash. Even Man-Thing realizes this isn't right and continues to follow the men. Soon, without Man-Thing touching them, all the Conquistadors rapidly age and die in heaps in front of a secret fortress. From inside the fortress, a man dressed in a comically over-the-top adventurer style emerges and fires a machine gun at Man-Thing. This, of course, has no effect, so he runs back inside. Man-Thing follows to find a hidden paradise with a beautiful fountain in the middle. Man-Thing is immediately set upon by the comic adventurer and more conquistadors, whose efforts have no real effect until a lovely young woman throws a bucket of water from the fountain on Man-Thing, and he begins to burn, collapsing in pain. Man-Thing, writhing in agony, manages to crawl from the fortress back into the swamp, where he is confronted by Schist and Wickham, who attempt to run the monster down in their boat. But when Man-Thing raises his arms to brace himself for the impact, the men notice one of his hands is human. So the Fountain of Youth is in Man-Thing's Swamp, because of course it is. I've mentioned this before on the show, that the Swamp, the nexus of all realities, is really just a wet room of requirement. Anything you need is available anytime you need it. And yes, you could see this as a contrivance. There are lots of things here that were meant to take with, without question. I mean, did no one notice a rather large fortress just walking distance from the construction camp? And F.A. Schist has been, we assume, looking for the Fountain of Youth for a year or more, but just now stumbles upon it? And did Richard really think he was going to live with two beautiful women with no strings attached on a DJ's salary? I mean, the unbelievable ideas are mounting. So this, now this may seem as if I'm about to launch into a diatribe on plot holes and about the, how the whole story makes no sense in a logical, rational way. And yes, that would be the knee-jerk reaction to this sort of thing, and sadly, it's the typical reaction to this kind of thing. But I think that's really missing the point. Every story told has a certain amount of coincidence and convenience inherent in it. If there wasn't, well, that would be kind of boring. There wouldn't be much of a, you know, story. But still, granted, a fantasy story like this one has an overabundance of coincidence and convenience in it. But again, that's the point. I've always seen the nexus of all realities as a swirling mass of magic. Things come into existence as they're needed, as the story requires. Coincidence and convenience is built into the premise of the book. Gerber can tell any story he wants with any situation, any characters, and any setting he wants because the swamp of requirement will provide the necessary ingredients. I actually think this is brilliant especially in serialized storytelling, where new ideas have to be churned out on a regular basis. Okay, okay, I'm getting a little bit into the weeds here, but I suppose I, suppose I should focus on some details. So, uh, spoilers, I guess. Uh, we're coming to the end of the saga of F.A. Schist, and to be honest, I'm not sorry to see him go. I mean, 
he's fine as a character, and Gerber used him to make some relevant points about greed and environmentalism, but I've always found him to be a bit tedious. Um, a little too on the nose as an evil businessman stereotype. So, you know, I won't be sorry to see him go. But again, that's that's for next time. Uh, as for today's story, Gerber really leans hard into the Spanish history of Florida, uh, without mentioning Ponce de Leon or explaining why it's conquistadors that are attacking. He just lets the story unfold and the weirdness of it just happen. I mean, if you know anything about the history of the area, you understand to a certain extent who and what these people are. I just I just love how he he simply introduces them as a bizarre aspect of the swamp. Something strange is happening. Go with it. And as Man-Thing is being attacked, there is a bit of bit of narration that I think is really important to Man-Thing as a character. He is bound in the conquistador's net. Man-Thing briefly remembers his life before before being a monster, just a flicker, and the narrator tells us, But that brief candle of memory flickers, dies, almost at once, snuffed out by the merciful oblivion that prevents the creature from ever knowing what it was he used to be. Mindlessness, his only defense against total and complete despair. If he knew, if the man, Ted Salas, who became the man-thing, knew, what would he find the greater torment? The humiliation of his flesh or that of his spirit. This is what makes Man-Thing so compelling to me. He's not just a human in the form of a monster. Gerber says, uses, Gerber uses the words humiliation of flesh and spirit. That's a, this is a horrific experience. This is a horrific existence. And if he were conscious of it, he would go insane. He would be filled with pain and loathing and in constant mental agony. The fact that he is mindless is a blessing. That's something to keep in mind when you think about this character. He's not just a lumbering monster with a silly name. There is real tragedy underlying who he is. Okay, so the conquistadors can't keep Man-Thing captive, and there is a funny bit of slapstick as Man-Thing slips from the nets and the conquistadors collapse into each other. Uh, Gerber describes it as the tug-of-war trick. Uh, as like when you let go of a rope and the other team falls all over themselves. Uh, I thought that was clever, and it's it's really really kind of funny. The weirdness piles on, however, as the as the conquistadors collapse into dust, and we finally get to see into La Hacienda, the home of the Fountain of Youth, which Gerber describes as I love this Shangri La Florida style. <laughs> uh, he says it's the city of the rainbow fountain, a sight of such compelling beauty. And this plays into what I was just saying. Man-Thing, even in his mindlessness, realizes that only beauty belongs here and that there's no place for him. On top of that, everyone there is afraid of him, which causes him pain as well. He is being tortured by just existing. That's sad. I mean, that's really sad. And then he's doused with the water of the fountain, which causes him physical pain as well as mental anguish. This is not a good day for Man-Thing. He's changing, of course. The water is restoring him, and we can see it by the reveal of his hand becoming human. And this transformation does it does not bring joy or terror. It just brings the realization that he wants to end his existence. The last panel is Man-Thing on his knees, arms outstretched, not in, not in defense, but in anticipation. He is embracing the impact and welcoming it. As the narrator says, 
He is groveling on his knees in the mud and the slime. He waits to die. And so a seemingly strange and weird tale unexpectedly turns tragic in the end. This is... This is a great comic. Yes, it's a little weird, and yes, there's some uh, 70s silliness inherent in it. But Gerber has taken that Fountain of Youth, that storytelling device of the Fountain of Youth, and used it in a couple of interesting ways. Well, first, in a typical fashion, it's a springboard for F.A. Schist greed and selfishness. You, selfishness. you know his entry into the Rainbow Fountain, in the city of the Rainbow Fountain, will not be a good one. But again, that's for next time. That's, that's set up for, for the conclusion. The real twist here on this is taking Man-Thing's, his warped psyche, and confronting him with the restoration of his mental faculties. As I already mentioned, this is not a good thing. But as an exploration of who and what Man-Thing is, it's pretty compelling stuff. All of this will be resolved next time on the, in the second part of the story. But this is really great, in my mind, really great setup and really great storytelling and really great character growth for Man-Thing, uh, who, is, who is mostly just seen as a lumbering slime monster. But there's a lot more inner depth to this character uh, that I don't think gets, a, gets enough attention. Okay, before I go, I suppose I should mention the side plot with Ruth and Richard and Isla. Richard Rory, the self-pitying baby man, will return to the story soon, in a couple of issues. Speaking of issues, Richard's got some. Seriously, if a woman tells you she's going back to school to start a new life, and your reaction is, but you'll hurt me? You know, piss off, Richard. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't enamored with him in this issue. I don't know if you can tell. Ruth Hart, however, aside from hurting Richard's feelings by having her own mind and life, <laughs> will go on to star in another series. That's why she's leaving. She's leaving to uh, to be one of the major characters in Omega the Unknown. Uh, Omega the Unknown is a new series being started at this time by Steve Gerber. Omega the Unknown was an interesting effort by Gerber, uh, a very unconventional superhero comic that was really unique. It only lasted 10 issues uh, due to poor sales, but it was different. It's very hard for me to describe because it's just an unusual thing in, in the history of comics. I would have loved to have seen where it would have gone had the title not been cancelled and had Gerber not eventually been fired from Marvel. I'd actually like to tackle Omega the Unknown in a miniseries someday because I find it so fascinating, but maybe that's for the future. And anyway, that's where Ruth goes. Next time, we will conclude this Fountain of Youth story in Man-Thing number 8, The Gift of death. Uh, as always, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, until next time, bye. <laughs> Not really a, a, a rousing, inspirational close there, but you know, usually I'm better at that sort of thing. Anyway, till next time. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elf production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. 
Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? 